Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some sad news about some losses for Hong Kong cinema this week. We also talk about Pang Ho Chung's new Lunar New Year comedy coming in 2019, Golden Horse Award preview, and our films for this week, Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings, and Ilang, The Wolf Brigade. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about a film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk in the middle of the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hi to everyone. It's been a while since we've talked, sir. Um, if you're actually listening to this, I'm not sure when it's going to get edited and, and released, but we are at the start of November and we pretty much missed all of October. <laughs> and that's completely my fault because of life getting in the way and basically making me busier than I kind of wanted to be. And now I have a bit of free time to kind of get back and, and do the thing that makes me happy, which is this podcast with my wonderful co-host, Mr. Kevin Ma. Um, but for those listeners out there who've seen nothing but kind of a, a you know dead air and dead sight, from um, our page and from our podcast feed for the last uh, month. I do apologize. I kept meaning to get over and, like, post a message that, no, we haven't pod faded. We're coming back. It's just there was a lot going on in October, and I don't want to get into any of that here because it's just not really worth getting into. But needless to say, uh, we do have this show, and uh, I've still got a September show, which at the time of this recording is about 90% edited and getting ready to be released and some other shows in the pipe as well. So uh, it's good to be back. We have been on a short hiatus, and I apologize, but um, we're back to doing what we love, which is talking about Asian film and film in general. Well, spoiler alert, uh, I survived Typhoon Mankut. <laughs> if anyone's... Because I think posting up the next episode is already a spoiler. But yeah. yes, uh, uh, I, I, I kind of listened back to the recording of the last episode that we just post, uh, posted from uh, Stormwatch, and that was... Oh, and I didn't realize it picked up that much noise. Oh, yeah. That was some, some noisy, noisy podcasting. Um, and it's like I said, I mean, there were a couple of times where it got, like, you know, so loud I thought you got blown out or something. So, um, <laughs> But thankfully, you are still uh, with us. You not only survived the typhoon, but you also survived uh, the chaos that followed in the days that followed. And uh, I certainly enjoyed seeing some of the memes that came from that uh, and that's, you know, sort of continue to circulate even today. Well, you guys also had Hurricane Michael rip through. How, how were things on your end? Well, for us, um, we were fine because it, what it did is it kind of skirted around, um, you know, the, the dongle that is uh, a more polite term that some people say of the United States that kind of hangs down and it went into what they call the panhandle, which is the sort of flat part that connects with states like Georgia and Alabama. Um, and so if you were like up in that north part, that's where you got severely hit. We 
barely had a little bit of rain because it just passed us by, so we were fine. But we have friends in Tallahassee who got hammered hard. Um, you know, uh, I have a particular friend who I knew who lived in Hong Kong. His wife's from, from Hong Kong who lived there. And his brother, their house, like, had a tree collapse on it, so major, major damage. But thankfully, you know, none of them were hurt. It's just, you know, one of the things that we deal with here in Florida because we don't have hills and mountains uh, like Hong Kong does, so there's not much to take the steam out of these storms, and they just pretty much come through and rip everything up. So, but yeah, I mean, we got, we were lucky we dodged a bullet because it was, I think we were mentioning, a year ago was when we actually had to leave. <laughs> I packed up the family and my in-laws from Hong Kong, and we took off to the Carolinas because we had, um, I forget the name of the storm that came through last year, but we had to get away from that one because um, that was kind of scary for us. So, um, yeah. so all's well in terms of our, you know, weekly re- weather report with Kevin <laughs> and Paul. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're we're kind of out of the season now. We're about to get out of the season, and we're about to do a time change, and that's always fun for uh, messing up the clocks of my body clock and my kids' body clock and dealing with school and all that. But other than that, it's all going well. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get into what we normally get into now and talk about this week's news. All right, over here at the news desk, um, well, I, I kind of struggle whether we should start off with this news or end the section of this news, but it's so big that we should get right into it. Um, this week, we, we've had um, quite a few losses in terms uh, of people, well, prominent figures in Hong Kong entertainment, uh, Hong Kong cinema, and Hong Kong entertainment in general. Uh, first, we lost um, Louis Chao, or also known as Jin Yong, um, the writer whose um, many, many books have been adapted into many, many films and many, many television series. So we're talking about what Duke of Mount Deer, Legend of Condor Heroes. Um, what else? Well, you probably name more than me. Oh, my God. Um, um, the dragon... Uh, Dragon, dragon tuts, tiger, dragon sword, tiger saber, dragon saber, tiger, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. It's like um, it's like well, if before before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there was the Jin Yong Cinematic, <laughs> there was the yeah. Jin Yong Universe. Like he has painted such a rich world of martial arts character and 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 wuxia, uh, wuxia stories, and he and he's just one of the greatest. I mean, most popular, if not one of the greatest, um, wuxia authors in our time, um, and he's written many, many great stories. And you, if you follow Hong Kong cinema, if you wa- follow Hong Kong entertainment at all, you have definitely seen his work or seen works that have been influenced by his works. Um, so it's a major, major figure, and not just in Hong Kong cinema, of course, and also in the Hong Kong literary world, in Hong Kong pop culture, in Hong Kong, or even Chinese language pop culture, um, and things like that. I, because my Chinese is not very good, uh, my blind spot is wuxia, wuxia stories, and I can't really understand wuxia stories, so I have once picked up a few pages uh, of uh, Duke of Mount Deer, or also known as Deer in the Cauldron, and then I put it down because I couldn't understand it. And then I watched the Stephen Chow movie instead, which is one way you could understand. But the thing is, like I said, if you, you, anyone, even someone who follows um, Hong Kong entertainment, Hong Kong um, TV, Hong Kong films, Hong Kong literature, would have come into contact with some kind of Jin Yong um, property, or what we call IP. And that's how influential he is. That's how big he is. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, if you're if you're a fan of anything really with regard to Asian culture, it's kind of hard to get away from him. I mean, a lot of the sort of honorariums that I've seen written talked about his literary work, and we of course know him a lot because of his cinematic influence, but he was a huge influence on comic books, um, and he's had adaptations, you know, in anime, in, you know, there's a there's a long line of uh, the Condor Heroes uh, manga out of Singapore, and so just to, to say prolific is probably an understatement, really, when you, when you think about it, plus all the generations, not just of film, but of television series, I mean, um, you know, Andy Lau kind of got a bit of a claim to fame on, t- you know, in TVB as Guoyi back in the day. And, you know, that was also done by, um, you know, the, the tanned one. He played that same role um, like a decade later, you know, because they reboot these things all the time. Shaw Brothers did numerous adaptations. We had, of course, the Stephen Chow adaptations. Um, and it's unfortunate because not a lot of the literature actually has made its way to English translation because of reasons. I don't know. They figure it's too culturally specific or they can't find a translator who's dynamic enough to do the translations, perhaps. Um, you know, it, it, it's difficult to say, but I, I've gotten... There, there was a three-volume edition, hardback edition of The Duke of Mount Deer that I remember seeing in back in page one in Hong Kong when that was... I'm still around. And I bought the first edition. I still have that. I didn't get the second and third edition because I thought, you know, they're expensive books, so let me read the first edition first. And I never ended up finishing it because I just moved on to other things. And I, But I never got the other two editions, so now it's like an incomplete set. Um, but he did another story called Fox Voiland of Snowy Mountain, which had a reason. There's a reasonable English translation soft back edition that you might be able to find use that's... Um, you know, it's, it's a good translation by my standards, and there is some stuff out of there, but a lot of it, especially, you know, the stuff that I think is perhaps more well-known, like the Condor Hero stuff, um, I don't think that's I don't think that's out there. I think right now there's, there's a coming translation of the first Condor Heroes saga, um, which I think is Legend of the Condor Heroes, if, if I'm getting the titles correctly. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if they're able to continue on to the return saga and to the, the final tri- uh, part of the trilogy, which is, I think it's Heaven's Sword, Dragon Saber, if I remember correctly. I'm not, uh, that title always throws me. Um, but you know, <laughs> a lot of people, you know, Jet Li was in one of the adaptations, um, even influencing up things like Stephen Chow's, uh, Kung Fu Hustle, right? Makes reference to Lewis Cha characters in a few places. So it's it's a loss that I think if anybody, if again, you're at all integrated into Chinese culture, that you will feel in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, um, and of course, in addition to um, writing, so he wrote a total of 15 novels, which were all um, released in a serial um serial fashion on newspapers in Hong Kong, including the one that he founded, Ming Pao. So, yeah, like I said, in addition to writing novels, he's also the founder of Ming Pao, which is still one of the more major newspapers um, in in Hong Kong today. Um, and he was also uh, very um, 
very prolific in in commentary. Um, he's also friends with uh, some of the biggest also literary figures in Hong Kong, and just simply a, a real legend. Really, I mean, how what other? I think even the word legend is sort of the uh, sort of underestimating how how big he was. He he truly is sort of a um, <clears throat> a godfather of the wuxia genre in Hong Kong literature. Um, and that's how big of a deal he is. But I mean, the th- thing is, Jin Rong was 94 years old, and he passed away from uh, natural, uh, from you know, yes, illness. But he's lived a very long and 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 uh, very fruitful life. And um, glad to have had his works come into my life or come into you know Hong Kong pop culture. And I think he's made a huge, huge contribution to uh, to to Hong Kong's uh, pop culture scene. So so yeah so uh, thanks thank you Mr Mr Jin for for all your work or Mr Cha as his real name is <laughs> sorry that sounds so yeah. there you go yeah all thanks right, indeed then... before you move on though uh, one question because this is something that's kind of been ruminating in the back of my mind you know Hollywood loves death and they love to pick up on things after people have passed on. Do you think that because of this, there are going to be some people trying to option his work in Hollywood and maybe get some, you know, U.S.-based adaptations made? No, I mean, no, I don't think so, because his work is so specific to Chinese culture. You know, people, um, like, I think uh, Ang Lee took, so adapted, so um, Jing Wen was one of the three major wuxia writers of his time, and... um, Ang Lee decided to option another author's work for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, I think Jin Rong's work is too much sort of set in its own world, and and he often set several novels within the same world, that same world. Um, and I think it's just too closely tied in, and it's too big for anyone to tackle. Um, I can say with... Um, I don't know how much I can reveal, but I can say that there is um, at least two adaptations in the work. So we know that uh, Trey Hark, um, who is direct, director of Detective D for Heavenly Kings, which we'll be talking about a little bit, he's working on an adaptation of Legend of Condor Heroes. And of course, this was planned way before Jin Rong's death. Um, the casting call came out, I think, of, uh, last month that revealed that he was working on this film and if he's putting out a casting call it means that he was way pretty much pretty deep into pre-production um at that point and there's another major adaptation coming up by a director that i can't quite reveal even though i already know and the news was meant to be released um sometime this week but of course the events that followed it became maybe not so uh such good timing to review that news so so uh i don't think i can reveal it yet but there is another major adaptation of another general work and of course every few years we get a chinese we get a tv adaptation of a general novel anyway so anything that comes afterwards um i don't think hollywood or anyone outside of the chinese region china chinese speaking region would try and tackle his work because Again, like you said, there's just not that much uh, translation out there. And I think to some people, Jin Rong's work might have been a bit too populous. Uh, he, maybe he doesn't quite... Um, yeah, it's a bit populous. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to say anything more because I'm not an expert in Chinese 
literatures. I don't know, but to me, it just seems like there's not much scholarly um, um, evaluation of his work the way that you know typical literature does as far as i can see but um i think for you know there's always genuine adaptations coming out every few years there's a new tv series there's a new film something like that and it's always been like this and i think of course it's easy to assume that this would just continue on uh for the coming years i think genuine having one of few timeless things in chinese pop culture at this point in the last 30 40 years is genuine adaptations it's practically its own genre, so I think they'll keep coming. <laughs> yeah, and if you are among the uninf- uninformed who have not, you know, been able to see much of his work, at least in terms of uh, television dramas uh, or movies, I mean, you do have, for example, the very short adaptation called *Little Dragon Maiden*, starring Leslie Chung, where they cr- try to cram, you know, what is what is a massive volume of work into about ninety minutes, and it. It doesn't work well, but it's it's still out there. It's still available. You have the Andy Lau version of Return of the Condor Heroes from TVB, which got a remastered release uh, in the mid-2000s, I want to say, on DVD with English subtitles. I don't think it's being sold firsthand anymore, and you might have to pay a little bit um, for a used or secondhand copy, but uh, that's perhaps my favorite version, even though I haven't seen the Lewis Coe version. I've been trying to get a hold of that for a while. Um, but that's, you know, that's one that's always stuck with me because, you know, it's Andy Lau. It looks very dated, though, and it's not going to be for everybody. Uh, but you also have the anime version out of Japan. Um, there's a DVD set that you can get a hold of with uh, English subtitles. And I mentioned it's the Wee Tang Bian version of the manga out of Singapore, which um, I think it has 19 or 20 volumes and also English, so get a hold of that because it's great artwork and it's you know a good retelling of the story. But again, you're going to be paying you know secondhand prices for some of that. You can still find it pretty reasonably, but it's a pretty big volume set to try and collect over over time. But if you ask me, well worth the price because it's also an excellent adaptation. Um, of course, so, there's also the Swordsman, um, yep. starring Sam Huey. There's Swordsman Two, Jet Li. There's Isis Red. That whole thing yeah. in the series. And you've got um, lots of then, stuff from Celestial Shaw too. I mean, yeah. that's out there. Yeah, and then there's Royal Tramp One and Two, and then uh, Ashes of Time. Even Ashes of Time, Eagle Shooting Heroes. They're actually sort of shoot-offs from Legend of Condor Heroes. It's not a traditional adaptation, but those are spin-offs. That's how big Jinong is, that one Kawaii can take the characters and then do his own thing and people will still get it. Yeah. And if nothing else, at least, you know, learn enough so that you can watch Eagle Shooting Heroes and enjoy it. Because <laughs> that's a crazy fun film. Once you start to get a, you know, get in, in touch with some of the characters and, and some of the gags that they're uh, making about those characters. There's other stuff that's, there's plenty of other stuff that's referenced in there too beyond sort of the some of the Jin Yong tropes, I would say. But um, having a good understanding of the characters, especially from the Condor Heroes uh, saga, or the, the, you know, the first one, the first series and the second series, is very helpful with that series. So uh, there you have it. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, sad to hear of his passing. Also, another passing that's uh, heavily impacted Hong Kong cinema. Yes, um, Mr. Raymond Chow, the, the founder of uh, Golden Harvest Studios, uh, also passed away this week. He was um, 
uh, also, I think, in his 90s, he was 92, I believe, 91. Um, so, uh, yeah, two, yeah, 91, two major legends. Well, this one's much, much more directed directly in, in impact to Hong Kong cinema because, of course, Gordon Harvest is one of the biggest studios in Hong Kong cinema history. He founded some of the biggest stars, um, not just in the martial arts genre, just found some of the biggest stars in Hong Kong cinema history. He produced some of the highest grossing films in Hong Kong cinema history. Um, he was um, just a real legend. I mean, if you've seen Hong Kong cinema, you have seen the Golden Harvest logo. Unless you just started watching Hong Kong films in the last 10 years, then, well, what the hell are you listening to this podcast for? Um, you should go back and watch a Golden, Golden Harvest movie. Um, I, or you, I think you can go to, us, the, they still have actual golden harvest cinemas right there's there's one or two yeah. left yeah yeah golden harvest cinema is still alive and well um even though they uh they've been they were at one point sold to a, a china over they, they are still sold owned by a chinese company so mr chow actually doesn't actually own golden harvest anymore um as far as i know it became a listed company and been handed off here and there um but still it's it was a huge you know I think I think all of us Hong Kong fan film fans. I think a lot of people in Hong Kong can hum the Golden Harvest <laughs> uh, logo theme. You know, if not the actual music, then the boom, 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 boom. Right? Everyone knows. <laughs> That's how big it is. It's like it's like us being able to hum the Universal Studio <laughs> music or something. Right? Um, so just like huge impact on Hong Kong cinema. Um, I guess some of the people that you could say he, he discovered include Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. Um, he funded some of their, their 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 films. Of course, Golden Harvest was a huge competitor against Shaw Brothers. Um, they went and um, he was actually in Shaw uh, Cathay um, or in Shaw Brothers. He was the head of publicity and production chief uh, for 12 years. Um, and then he went off to found, found his own company, Golden Harvest, and then they became huge competitors. And in that competition, you know, led to the golden age of Hong Kong cinema. Um, and uh, and they were the biggest company in Hong Kong during that golden age. So it's hard, it's impossible to ignore the influence of Golden Harvest if you are a fan of Hong Kong cinema and, and well, fan of cinema history because Golden Harvest, uh, when they were huge, they also uh, invested in Hollywood films. I think Cannonball Run, I think it's a, it's a Golden Harvest production. I think it's a co-production. I, I can't say for sure. But yeah, that's how big they were. Yeah, so another big loss for Hong Kong cinema. And sadly, perhaps the most tragic of the three big losses this week is that of uh, Yami Lam. Yeah, Yami Lam. Um, perhaps, again, millennials, people who just followed the last 10 years of Hong Kong cinema or Hong Kong entertainment might not know who Yami Lam is because she's sort of faded away from the spotlight. Uh, but even though she was, or she was in the spotlight for the wrong reasons. Um, very tragic life. Uh, she was huge in the 80s and the 90s. She was in many... Um, she was... Well, of course, people who watch Hong Kong films would know that she was in uh, Jeff Lau's Chinese Odyssey. But before that, she was also in some of the biggest um, Hong Kong TV series, uh, including Greed of Man, the, the the one that starred Adam Chang and Sean Lau. I mean, Lau Cheng Wan. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in the last decade or last decade and a half, she was 
plagued by financial troubles and also uh, mental health issues. Um, and uh, so it was. it's a very sad ending to a sort of a tragic life. She really had her ups and downs. And she was found... Um, uh, 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 she was 55 and she was found uh, dead in her flat um, after I think a few days a friend found her and um, apparently there's no suspicious uh, suspicion around the cause of death um, even though the police haven't locked down on, on, on what actually happened but um, like I said it's just a very sort of tragic life that she had um, and it's it's a bit sad that it came to uh, came to an end like that all right, on to some happier news, right? Chinese Lunar New Year news. Yeah, uh, well, Lunar New Year is coming up in a couple of months in February. So, of course, it's time for the annual um, rush to get to the Lunar New Year box office to make Lunar New Year films. Um, we already have two that are in production or wrapping up already. Uh, one is uh, the directorial debut of Wan Cho Nam. I think that one is backed by by Eric Zhang, so you expect a lot of TVB stars on that one. Um, is, that gonna, one is, is that going to be starring him as well? Um, Wang Cho Wan Cho Nam or Eric Zhang? Wang Cho um, I assume he'll be in it, hmm. um, but I can't say for sure. Um, I already forget the huge. I mean, the thing is, trying to recite a cast of a Lunar New Year film is just going to take us the whole show. So let's not even try. Um, the other film is uh, the directorial debut of Andrew Lamb, uh, who you may remember from uh, Full Strike. He's also, of course, a, a legendary lyricist, a hilarious comedian um, on a lot of you know Hong Kong game shows. But he's also he was also very funny in Full Strike, um, the badminton film by Derek Kwok. Uh, and now he's making his directorial debut, which I is, I'm very afraid it might be as rambling as he is <laughs> on stage sometimes. But anyway, that film is coming. Um, but the third entry, it's something that's got me really intrigued. It's the uh, first Lunar New Year comedy by director Pan Ho Chen. I think I mentioned this already before in the show, and I thought he was joking when he talked about it on Facebook. Um, but apparently it's real. The film is called Misbehavior. And uh, it's a star-studded Lunar New Year comedy that's with mostly a female cast. Um, some of the cast members, it just started shooting this week, uh, which is sort of like a return to form for Pao Chai because he was, he was, you know, very, very quick with... He was always very quick with local productions. He would shoot them in 19, 20 days and then get them out very quickly. <coughs> Excuse me. He will get them out very quickly. And the cast right now so far includes Dada Chan, it can be by Isabel Learn, um, some of the side supporting actors from the uh, Love Trilogy, including Brenda Lamb, uh, Isabel Law, um, sorry, Isabel, um, Isabel Lamb, I think I forget her name, Isabel something, the one who plays Miriam Rion's best friend. Um, and also the male cast includes uh, 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 Trey Yao from Shine. And there's a whole lot of people. Again, I can't recite the entire cast. There's also word that Miriam Yeo will probably make an appearance. Gigi learned yesterday on Facebook review that she also makes a cameo. So, of course, expect lots of cameo from um, Power Trans' favorite people in this big, um, huge Lunar New Year film. Now on Twitter, I mentioned that the plot is not known, by the way. There's no one. No one but all we know is that there will be a lot of women in the film and the uh i promised on twitter that i would try to explain the tagline of the poster um and i'm going to try 
but it might involve some illicit activity. So I don't know, Paul, you want to cut this out. But <laughs> the sort of tagline of the film is um, literally translated is, I truly congratulate you. Okay, which means nothing. Yeah, it sounds a bit sarcastic, but it only means something because you have to be a Hong Kong netizen or be very familiar with Hong Kong pop culture because it counts from a leaked phone call from the early 90s between Michelle Reyes and and um, her supposedly her beau at the time, her man at the time. And apparently he... In the phone call, it was um, hinted or quite explicitly stated that he <clears throat> he has chosen to uh, promote another actress or another star. Uh, uh, I assume maybe kind of competing. And the angry Michelle Reyes says, "Oh, I truly congratulate you!" In a very sarcastic way, like. I truly congratulate you. You should go and make her a huge star or whatever. Go whatever. Well, I don't know what the hell. I think it was like, I, I forget the specific of the phone call and I shouldn't because it's a leaked phone call. But I can just tell you it's it's the, it's the from a leaked phone call between Michelle Reyes and, and someone she was dating or someone that she was connected, associated with. And that line came up and it became like this huge... Um, uh, internet viral thing everyone just started using that like I truly congratulate you like it's something um, if it's like oh my plane got delayed by 8 hours then someone will say oh I truly congratulate you so it's that kind it's like a real sarcastic like oh you know bummer kind of comment or uh, or it's almost like a um, uh, 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 it's almost like um, insult in a way like ha like like serves you right kind of thing um, but of course used here in the new to new year comedy poster of course, it literally means, oh, like, I really congratulate you, you know, I, I truly offer my blessing. But of course, just that use of that shows, you know, it's supposed to be the film's really hip. Yes, it's not a real eloquent explanation of the term, but it's the best I can do. There it's, you go. it's some good context. I mean, and this is what he does, right? He likes to reach back. And, you know, he's done this in his films, right? He reaches back to old... Uh, you know, drink commercials and old pop video songs that for, you know, people on the outside, they'd probably just be scratching their head. And even for some people inside who are insiders, it's still sometimes obscure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so it shows that, well, I mean, of course, it shows that uh, the film is going to be uh, um, very local. It's very Hong Kong. I don't think it's even going to be a co-production. Um, of course, it certainly means it's done on a cheap. Um but yeah, it's it's gonna be uh, huge, huge fun. I think um, just the poster itself is already funny. So, but I mean, the, I guess the big question I have is: it's Pang Ho Chung. Is he gonna be pushing for a category three on this? Which would be of course not. Kind of, course of you know. No, 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 no. It's a Lunar New Year movie. You know, it's supposed to be, you know, not if not for all ages. It's supposed to be, you know, as inclusive as possible. So it's for a mass audience. He's not going to try and make it a category. I don't think. Because you're supposed to be, you know, in Lunar New Year, you're not supposed to be swearing. You're not even supposed to swear. So I doubt he might even put a swear word in the film. Um, because it is supposed to be a Lunar New Year comedy. supposed to go with the tradition of, you know, making people laugh and being entertaining and being cheerful. So, no, I, he's not going to go for a category for here. I doubt it. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it, if and when it comes my way. Um, 
And so, yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, the other two uh, Lunar New Year films that we know about, right? The um, the one coming from... Uh, Andrew Lamb. Andrew, Andrew Lamb. Lamb, okay. Um, who we last saw and talked about in this year's staycation. So. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> you know, he's still, he's still working. Hopefully it's going to be a better film than that film was, to be sure. Um, but yeah, he does have a tendency to seem like he's just kind of improving on the spot. So it'll be interesting to see what he does when he takes up uh, the director's chair. And uh, Wang Cho Lam, uh, if he's just a director, I think that'd be inter- interesting. But if he's kind of director and the star, uh, that kind of worries me a little bit. I don't know why. A lot of people are already sort of mocking Wang Cho Lam because I think for a couple years back then, um, he was mainly focusing his career on China. And then a lot of people sort of, you know, not mocked him, but they criticized him for it. And then, of course, they put on this attitude like, you know, I've got to, you know, why not, you know, make Chinese films? You know, why not work in Chinese entertainment? Um, blah, blah, blah. Why not unite the two, whatever, Hong Kong and China? And, and and he sort of put this attitude like, I'm not above it. Why are you above it? Like, And and then suddenly comes back to Hong Kong. And, you know, because there have been a lot of restriction on Hong Kong entertainers and Hong Kong um, uh, filmmakers in the last um, year or so, uh, in fact, you're starting to see sort of return um, some Hong Kong filmmakers or some Hong Kong actors coming back to Hong Kong now. Um, and you see sort of resurgence in that sort of low mid-budget Hong Kong films because uh, some companies or some investors or some directors just realize it's not worth it anymore because of all the new regulations and all the sort of ever-changing um, rules. And so, of course, at the... Um, press conference for the for the thing uh, for this film Wang Chunam now he's switched sort of flip-flopped and says oh I really want to do my part for Hong Kong cinema I want to do my part for Cantonese comedy and I want to promote Cantonese and all that stuff so people are just sort of mocking him for being a hypocrite or sort of just flip-flopping um, conveniently flip-flopping to wherever the money is um, I am ambivalent uh, i think you know a, a local new year comedy is always a welcoming thing um even if the person who, who does it is sort of flopping and and you know and that's the nature of hong kong hong kong entertainment anyway many of the people you know just want to make a living it's a hyper commercial industry and it just means everyone wants to make a living and they will go where the wind blows and it's just the way things are so last bit of news this week golden horse news yes um so i I've been this is the fall and I'm traveling a lot and of course coming up and you know I think we haven't gotten a chance to go over the Golden Horse nominees. I'll be traveling to the Golden Horse Film Festival next week to watch about yes. twenty thirty films um, and, and and see Kevin's rant on Twitter. Rant on what? Oh yeah, <laughs> I, of course I will be doing. Uh, oh yeah, sorry I did rant about ticketing, um, which you know I shouldn't be ranting because actually Golden Horse is the easiest. It, it's the easiest festival to buy tickets for. Um, but it just you know festival hopping is difficult. It's a difficult life, y'all. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'll be watching about thirty films there, and of course I will be doing my live Golden Horse blog um, there. But I think we should take a moment to. I think by the time that this goes up, the Golden Horse Award will just be about happening. And if you're following me, or if you follow my usual Golden Hi- Golden Horse live blog, I'll be doing it on Sunday. Uh, oh, sorry, Saturday night, um, November 17th. Uh, I think it's 8 p.m. Taiwan time. I double-checked the time, but I think it's 8 p.m. local time. Um, and I will be following the Golden Horse Awards 
from my hotel room in Taiwan, uh, which absolutely means nothing except I get to see Taiwanese ads. Yay. Um, but just a quick look at the nominees. Um, one of the leading films, one of the leading nominees this year is Shadow, the new Zhang Yimou film, which if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's fantastic. I had my doubts before, but I watched it and then, you know, it's actually as awesome as everyone um, predicted it, or everyone says it is. Um and another leading uh, nominee is uh, Elephant Standing Still. It's a four-hour opus by director Hubo, who unfortunately um, committed suicide before the film was released, before the film was completed. But um, early this year, it made its debut on the film festival circuit and has been traveling ever since and has gotten a lot of acclaim. I'll be watching that film at Golden Horse as well. Um, Dying to Survive, the, the, the Chinese the Chinese social comedy um, that's sort of like the Chinese version of Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, it stars Xu Zhen. Um, there's rumors that it might end up on a streaming service, uh, service sometime soon, uh, which is why it hasn't shown up on the Chinese streaming sites, but um, I have no idea. Um, that's also a major nominee. Um, the other one is uh, The Long Day's Journey Into Night, the second feature film by director Began. Uh, who made a huge splash of Kylie Blues. And here he offers another huge, huge long take, 50-minute, 60-minute long take. The film stars Tom Wei and includes a cameo by Sylvia Chang. Um, the film premiered early this year in the Uncertain Regard version, in, uh, in the Uncertain Regard section of Cannes Film Festival. And um, this is the Asian premiere, so of course I couldn't get a ticket to Golden Horse. And it will unfortunately be the only best film nominee that I haven't seen by the time the the awards roll around. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see it, well, sometime. Um, and the last one, the only Taiwan uh, Taiwanese representative in this best feature nominee uh, category is uh, D-Rex, um, a film that I did see in Udine Far East Film Festival early this year. It's a pretty solid um, dramedy um, about a housewife who um this who whose husband left her for a gay lover and then when he died he decided to leave all the money for the gay lover so he decides to she decides to go after the gay lover for the money um but it in the process um a weird sort of familiar bond is is formed in the process as she tries to come to terms with um the abandonment and the death of her husband um some very interesting observations that you can see on my Asian cinema website. I mentioned that this year, the best film nominees, except, except for shadow, they're all, the other four films are made by, um, uh, early, well, first time filmmakers, uh, Beyond is his second film, uh, elephant standing still. Unfortunately, this is Hubo's first and only film, um, Dying to Survive, also a directorial debut and D-Rex also a directorial debut. So a huge shift, um, I think in terms of Chinese-speaking cinema world where the old names aren't guaranteed for these awards anymore, where you see these young directors sort of stepping up and making, um, making you know, putting their flag into the industry. Um, but of course, the a lot of them are the best new director and the best new director uh, category. Whereas the best director category, you still you still see familiar names like Zhang Yimou, Zhang Wen for Hidden Man. You see um, Pema De- Seiden, who did Jinpa, you see Lo Ye, so you still see those old names up there, but it's funny because the best film nominees are all directed, almost all directed by young and upcoming new filmmakers. Um, and you'll see this year that while Taiwan 
um, they take up a lot of the performance, the performing categories, as in the actor and actress, new actors, supporting actor, and things like that. Um, many of the most nominated films this year are Chinese, so there's a big, big invasion. You know, for the last two years, Hong Kong cinema has pretty much left almost no mark in Golden Horse anymore. Um, this year, Golden uh, Hong Kong films are in the I think Best Actress category. You see Chloe Mayan, who is in Fu Chan's Three Husbands, who is from mainland China, by the way. Excuse me. Um, and then you see um, Kara Wai for Tracy. You see um, one of the actors uh, in Tracy for Best Supporting Actor. But otherwise, uh, and of course the technical categories, so Detective D and Monster on Two, all supported. You know, all nominated in technical categories, but. In the major direct directing and film category, it's the second year, I think second year in a row where, well, it's the first year in a long time where there's no Hong Kong nominee and Best Film nominee. And, um, and you know, last year is kind of a similar thing. Actually, last year, yeah, there's a second year in a row there isn't a single Hong Kong nominee in the Best, um, best Film category. So it's a bit of, so it's a continuing sort of portrait accurate portrayal of the way things are in the Chinese-speaking um, cin- uh, speaking Chinese cinema world, which is Hong Kong cinema is slowly sort of drifting into its own, off to its own thing, where, you know, it's no longer recognized critically outside of Hong Kong, um, whereas, you know, Chinese cinema continues to flourish in both, you know, um, production values and in terms of quality, you know, as much as we, you know, people bash commercial Chinese cinema for not producing any, you know, real great work, every year they still produce some of the best films in this world. Just, you know, because by pure, in terms of, you know, volume, you always find, you know, a certain percentage of really great films. And when you have a cin- industry that makes like 300 films a year, you're bound to get a, a double digit number of great films every year. Uh, and some of them are recognized here. Um, I feel like Derek's, uh, which in my personal opinion, not a really great film, it's um, sort of recognized because it has to be the Taiwanese representative. But I think this year it's just sort of been a overall sort of weak year in both Taiwanese and, and, and Hong Kong cinema. And the Golden Horse nominees reflect that. So more coming up uh, on the actual night of the awards, uh, November 17th, Saturday, um, 8 p.m. local time, um, live blog on Asia in cinema. All right. That's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back, it's our first e-screen review of the week with Detective D and the Four Heavenly Kings. So for our e-screen review this week, up first, it's Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings. This is the prequel sequel to the prequel of the first Detective D film, uh, directed by Tsui Hark. And if that confuses you, wait until we get into the plot, because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's Tsui Hark, so what are you going to do? Uh, this is starring uh, Mark Chow, who took over the Detective D role in the prequel, the second film, which was the prequel. Uh, the story has Detective D who now holds the dragon-taming mace, 
presenting a threat to the rise of Empress Wu in her quest for power. So she enlists the aid of a group of mercenary sorcerers, led by her assistant Yuqi Zhenjin, played by William Feng, to steal the mace from Di, thus limiting his authority over her. But as this game of intrigue between the two divisions ensues, a hidden threat conspires to seize power. So I guess I'll start off and say that I had fun with this, and I liked it a lot more than the first prequel. Uh, it's a Tsui Hark film, so it tends to be kind of all over the place at times. I mean, if you saw, uh, what was his last film? Thousand Faces of Dungia, right? Um no, oh, he didn't direct that. He produced it. Well, he wrote and produced yeah. it. Well, yeah, okay, he produced <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it, you've got that kind of style, the kind of tropes, but also kind of just kind of being scatterbrained at times, right? And I think this is a bit tighter than that. And I, again, actually think it's more interesting in terms of some of the dynamics that are going on here than what they did in uh, Detective D and The Sea Dragon. Um, the first prequel film. So not really sure why they called it Four Heavenly Kings. I mean, they do have these giant four statues in one scene, but they don't really do anything. Um, but I guess it's kind of cool, and it's also kind of a, you know, pop culture reference, you know, to other Hong Kong stuff that's not really relevant in the film, but would be if Andy Lau was playing a role. But he doesn't, so... Yeah, it's full of kung fu tropes, um, lots of recognizable elements, especially from detective-style fiction of late. I mean, they're still kind of playing on the more contemporary Sherlock-style sleuthing uh, at times, you know, with people being able to retrace steps and kind of imagine what was happening as they kind of go through breaking down a case or uh, elements of things that are happening in, in real time or in flashback time. But it's Soy Hark, and for me, it was entertaining. It was worth the price of admission. A lot of scope, a lot of spectacle. If you've been with the characters this far and you've liked what you've seen so far, I think you probably won't be disappointed. Um, you know, again, you'll probably you may not like this as much as the first or second film, but it really depends on what you're looking for in terms of the narrative and some of the dynamics. It's technically, I think, more adept than um, either the first or the second film in terms of what they're doing special effects-wise, which makes sense because it's a lot of progression. We've moved way beyond the fake CGI deer from the first film, thankfully, um, <laughs> and nothing quite so you know, uh, standout-ish in, in this film. I think most of the effects that they're going for um, tend to look really, really good. Mark Chow surprised me. I think he's matured into the role more fully now. I didn't really like him in uh, The Sea Dragon. And I look, he's no Andy Lau. And, you know, I, that's not a slight against him. Andy Lau was the role in the first film. And if I want to see anything, I want to see more sequels with Andy Lau in them. I don't know if we're going to get that. Um, ever, but um, you know that's my big wish. But I think he really matures into the role nicely here. I really felt like he was much more engaging as the Detective D character than he was in the first film. And I would not be against a third prequel with him at the helm. And it kind of you know there's kind of a mid credits thing and a post credits thing where they're leading into. Um, I mean, they make reference to the Andy Lau Detective D film, 
But there's still a gap um, that has to happen between this film and that film to kind of tell the story of, you know, what exactly happens as we go into what state he's in, uh, in the, the mystery of the Phantom Flame, right? So, but again, I, I'd be okay if Mark Chow, you know, comes into that rather than, than having them kind of de-age Andy Lau. Um, but it, ideally, they just, at a certain point, do a, another sequel, an actual sequel with Andy. Uh, this is um, relevant <clears throat> because it's been out a couple months already. I had the good fortune of being able to watch this um, paid through uh, Yoku, which was kind of complex but kind of cool at the same time because it did have English subtitles. But uh, for those of you in the U.S. who did not get a chance to see this because it did not get theatrical release near me, um, maybe you got it in your area. But if not, it is coming to U.S. DVD and Blu-ray on November 13th, which is about uh, 10 days out from when we're recording this episode. So you should be able to get your hands on it um, in the not-too-distant future. And again, my thoughts on it are that it's um, well worth it um, if you've liked the series so far, and I think it holds up better than um, than the Sea Dragon film. So, Kevin, let me throw it over to you because I know you've got a lot to say about it as well. Well, first of all, um, if you remember the, the end of the last prequel, actually, Trey Hark predicted the other stories that he wanted to tell in the Detective D universe already. I don't remember much of it, honestly. <clears throat> Excuse me, but one of them is <clears throat> one of them is to fall for uh, four heavenly kings, and I think there are a few more. So you have to go back to the credits to 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 know what what he was gonna what he was previewing. But um, my God, now that you remind me, so many post credit scenes. It's like it's even worse <laughs> than a Marvel movie. It's almost like he watched a Marvel movie and go hold my beer, <laughs> like and it's. Just, so let me do it like it's like he left out the last 10 minutes of the film and just chopped it up into the post credit sequences yeah my like that. god that was so many i was like, i just want to i was watching on a, on my ipad on a plane i was like i just want to turn it off and go to sleep why won't you just end is it a long flight oh my god but anyway okay so to be honest trey hark films really wear me out um I think um, the Thousand Fears of Dunja, which again on paper is directed by Jim Wo Ping, so I shouldn't blame Trey Hart too much for this, but that movie wore me out. Um, so, so this one is no exception. I think it took me two, two or three different sits to really get through it. Um, and I like that they go back to the volatile relationship between the Empress and D, which was the, the sort of central conflict in the first film. Yeah, there's spontaneous combustion, but really the big thing is about. Um, the drama is about this woman who imprisoned this guy, and then the he, and then when she needs his help again, the relation, the volatile sort of the um, the hostile relationship that they shared, um, and this this one sort of goes back to it and starts setting it up, which is you know shows that Trey Hark remembers that he still has a story to tell, that has to connect back to the first film, but there's an inherent problem in these two sequ- prequels, okay. Um, I think Trey Hark is a showman. There's no doubt about that. And when he makes a franchise, every film has to top the previous one, which makes total sense. But here is the inherent problem of a prequel. It's that when, let's say if you live in the world of Detective D stories, okay, and you live through all the stories, including the prequels and the the, 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 the original film, um, and 
you remember in the very early days of the De- Detective D, he tackled a giant sea monster. And then in this new film, he tackled whatever the heck he ends up tackling, which is, again, a huge thing. And then 20 years later, some dude just bursts into flames. <laughs> and you go like, well, this is no big deal. I mean, come on. We've had giant sea monsters and we've had these giant monsters that, that hit our capital. Who cares if there's a some dude burst into flames? It's like these. So how are we? Why should anyone be even shocked by what happens in the original film? When you had two prequels, when so much more unbelievable things that you know came before it, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, but you know, it's an inherent problem in when you make a prequel that you know continue from original film. You have to go up because you can't go down. So then, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and by now, because Treyarch is a show, showman, that you know, at the beginning. Uh, the, the 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 whole idea, the whole concept behind Detective D is that it's supposed to be sort of like a like a like a period Scooby Doo, right? Like it's about this brilliant detective who faces seeming, seemingly impossible, almost supernatural occurrences, and he has to go and and mythbuster it essentially, right? Like, oh, it's not this, yeah, spontaneous combustion. No, it's something else. Uh, or giant sea monster. No, it's something else. Although there is apparently some fish dude. I think it was like a real frog dude, right? I don't remember. It was like a real frog dude. Like, yeah, it's like a creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, it was like Black Lagoon, which I guess is pseudoscience. I guess it's not. And then by now, he just gets more and more mystical into like realms that completely goes against the nature of the franchise the com- original concept it's, a, it's it, supposed it, it's to it's a bit more in that that kind of pseudo wuxia uh, you know wushu esque wuxia um kind of like swordsman you know where it's called like black magic but it's really more about like drug induced stuff you know i mean yeah i think that i think you're right this one they do kind of push into that supernatural side a little bit more, uh, especially than the first film did. Yeah, I forgot how to explain the sea monster in the last film, though. <laughs> I mean, apparently that no, no, it was a real sea monster, though. It, no, it, it was, was like it some was, giant it, octopus. It was a or, manta ray <laughs> with, with, with armor on it. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> well. If you put it that way, <laughs> that makes perfect scientific sense. Yeah, it does. It's a giant manta ray so with somebody's... an armor. <laughs> yeah, Scooby Doo it, man. Scooby Doo it. You know, yeah, I mean, just come on. You were just trying to explain that. How is this? It just feels like they're getting more and more lazy. It's almost like Treyarch didn't want to open up a physics book and just go like, eh, let's just make it drug induced. Eh, let's just make it a giant mentorary of armors. Who care if they exist? It kind of does. It potentially does. I mean, global warming, right? Yeah. I mean, like, like it's DNA, the man, right? <laughs> I mean, like DNA, right? Like, like. Maybe it doesn't exist now, but how do we know it didn't exist back then? Yeah. No, I know it sounds. I sound like Treyarch on weed, but I don't think that man, that man even has the time to do drugs. I don't know, but yeah. So to me, the the 
the whole franchises make less and less as it goes on. And to me, if you're not going back to that original concept, then what's the point of this franchise continuing to exist? Um, I think Mark Chow is fine, and you know the this dynamic of the other two characters are good. Him and William Fung character and the uh, the the Lee Gun Shin character, uh, Lee Gun Shin who plays the sort of he plays Sha Tuo, I think his name's Sha Tuo, who is the um, physician. And I think he's fine, and he sort of takes a bigger role in this film. He has sort of the main romantic subplot against uh, Ma Si Chun, who was in Soulmate, and um, I think you know it's a good chance for the other two characters to shine. But it's funny how Detective D in a Detective D movie becomes the weakest character in a way. Like he doesn't really change. He just sort of he is the guy who saves the day, and he does a lot of investigating. And he's always sort of one step ahead of his enemies. Um, which is, again, inherent problem with something like this when you have such a uh, revered character, such a powerful character that is always one step ahead of people. Um, so to me, he's, a, he's like a narrative tool rather than a character. Um, and to me, I feel like I feel I feel like I've had enough of the franchise. Um, sure, it'll be fun to get another D movie, but you know, Treyarch is now doing Legend of Condor Heroes, and that's gonna drag him down for a couple years. And maybe in a few years' time, maybe I'll miss Detective D. Maybe who knows? But at this point, I'm kind of done with it. And judging from the box office in China, it seems like Chinese audiences also had their day with it already. It didn't do as well as the previous film. And this one apparently probably costs more to make. Um, So it's hard to justify another film if the box office isn't going up. Uh, Maybe Trey Hark has to bring back Andy Lau. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just wishful thinking. But it is expensive to bring back Andy Lau for a film. It's cheaper to get Mark Chow. So that's how the dice roll. Um... Uh, and you know, let's see what happens in a few years. Let's see what happens after Con- Condor Heroes, and let's see what happens. Um, how I feel afterwards. But at this point, it's not a bad entry into the franchise. But I feel like it's already running out of steam. And personally, I would be fine if I don't see. And I don't do well with franchises except their name if their name Star Wars. Um, I am personally sort of just done with this franchise at the moment. like fire into a new world day to And welcome back. So for our second film this week, another East Screen film of note, and that is Ilong, The Wolf Brigade. Um, This is a Korean production that was released earlier this year and is now out on Netflix. So, uh, Kevin, why don't you take it away? All right. Um, So Ilong is the remake of General The Wolf Brigade, the film by Mamoru Oshii, the animated film. Uh, it's the latest film by director Kim Ji-woon, who is one of my favorite Korean directors. He made The Good, The Bad, The Weird. He made, uh, what else? The Foul King. He also made The Last Dance, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> which is pretty relevant. His last film was Age of Shadows, the the really great spy film uh, starring uh, Song Kang-ho and uh, Gong Yu. 
So he's one of the biggest directors in Korean cinema, and this is his latest film. is financed by co-financed by uh, Warner's Warner Brothers Korea. Um, so obviously a huge production. Um, the story, basic just sort of story. Again, it's a very convoluted plot. So I'm just gonna do like a very simplified version of it. In 2029, global geopolitics have forced North and South Korea to unify. In the ensuing chaos, two government agencies in South Korea clash while an opposition force tries to stop the unification. Meanwhile, a soldier for the special police unit, um, played by Gundam Wan, begins to question his humanity when a young girl dies before his eyes during an operation. Um, So my confession... Uh, I have not seen the original film. Um, I know Paul has, so he's going to do a big comparison between the two, but I have not seen the original film, so I'm going in sort of fresh, um, not knowing the story. Um, I am a huge fan of Kim Ji-woon, but even I must admit there's a disappointment. Um, There's a lot to say about this movie, but I'll try and keep it brief because I think we already have a pretty long show. But anyway, the good thing is that the film looks great. It costs about three times more than your average Korean production. I think it costs like like seventeen, eighteen million dollars US, which is a huge production for a um, for a Korean film. So it looks stunning. He does not skimp on cinematography. Does not stunt, skimp on art direction. Um, there is this big, huge um, riot scene in the beginning of the film that is set in sort of futuristic Guanghuamun. Guanghuamun is um, the area in Seoul where. Um, it's near the old palace and it's where when there's a huge protest that's where it happens so it's big y street and there's a riot scene that is set there but of course futuristic wangwamun is there for shot in the studio and it looks a bit fake but the other action scenes actually are very very well shot and very well choreographed and a lot of explosions and very well you know just well made you know it looks you know every penny is on the screen excuse me <coughs> So the action scenes are pretty solid, if not spectacular. I mean, the thing is, it sort of hits my pet peeve, which is that most of these scenes are are set in isolated industrial spaces, which is um, my pet peeve because those are the most boring action scenes to look at. You know, there's no they're 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 grim, they're dim, and there's not much visually, and it sort of tells you that it's just a way to make a, a, a economical action scenes. You know, yeah, you could do a lot of things in industrial spaces, but to me, visually, they're the most boring to look at. So I really don't like these big action movies that have action scenes that are set in these abandoned industrial spaces. Um, and the problem is the plot is super convoluted. I mean, I gave you the real simple version, but the film runs 138 minutes. And in the middle of that, there's a lot of double crosses, and there's this whole, whole thing about the two dueling agencies and and some people who work who double crosses and who's working for whom and a lot of them are are, are verbal exposition so at one point i just stopped keeping track of who's working for whom i'm just like why are these people clashing who cares um who's working for whom who cares who's crossing who who cares and in the end you no longer care who you're supposed to root for because yeah there's a big action scene in the end but the thing is they're between two groups who are sort of bad or they're between two groups of people who are like sort of good. Like you don't know who, who you want to win anymore by that point. Um, and to me, that's a real failure 
of of the of the script um because it doesn't set its characters clear enough on their agenda we don't know what these characters want we don't know what their agenda is so when they're up against each other we don't know what they're fighting for um so i just stopped following the plot at one point um gandam wan who's um one of sort of south korean cinema's heartthrob he gets a pretty good deal actually so he spends the most of the movie you know without with his face and you know without the whatever and you know trying to act and emote but then for the final action sequence He's in that huge suit. You know, everyone who knows, you know, the Wolf Brigade knows that there's a suit involved. And he spends the entire action sequence in the suit, which means he's probably not in the damn suit. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, it's a great sequence, but you kind of like, Gundam wants got a really good deal out of this, didn't he? He didn't have to do the final action sequence. Um, and his character's really shallow. So it's it's hard for him to really do much acting, quote-unquote acting. Uh, in fact, uh, Han Ho Ju, the lead actress who who plays a um, the sister of the woman that that young woman that dies in the beginning of the film, she ends up sort of getting the best character in the film because she has the most to do. And the other big actor in the film, Zhang Wu Song, he has this. Um, so he plays Gan Dong boss, and uh, I was very amused because. You know he's one of the most handsome actors in South Korean cinema, and they need to put an entire layer of bad skin on him just to you know rough him up. And I'm just sitting there, I'm looking, and you know I can't help but wonder, you know, how many hours of makeup they have to sit through to get that bad skin to get himself bad skin. And I was just so amused by that. But you know, again, he doesn't do much emoting, so it ends up being you know falling to the hands of Han Hoju. But the thing is, her character, the story is so convoluted that again you stop caring about what that character stands for, what that character wants. So it's hard to care about any of the people in this film. Um, the big, I guess the big draw or the big thing that differentiates this version from the original Japanese version is the idea, uh, it's the backdrop of North South Korea reunification. Um, it's briefly mentioned beginning is used to set up the, the world. But the thing is, it's kind of dropped right after it's mentioned. It doesn't really play a part in the story because even the interagency battle here is actually between South Korean agencies. So North Korea doesn't actually play a part in the story. Um, and it's pretty much useless. And it just feels like a gimmick more than an actual plot point. Um, so that's again, the failure of a script. Kim, Kim Ji-woo knows how to put together a great-looking film. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I don't think there's any doubt to whether he can make a film or not. But the thing is, the story is really lost in the visuals this time around. Um, I think it's too complicated for its own good, and he just forgot to do an extra draft for the script or something. I don't know. Something happened along the way, and I don't know what it is. But it resulted in his biggest flop, I think, of his career, the biggest flop in his career. Um if I'm not sure if I saw the devil is the biggest flop of his career, but this is certainly one of the biggest flop of the year in Korea. And I am very sorry to say I think it's probably deserved. Like it deserved to be to be a flop. Is it a major disaster quality wise? No, I think that it's a very flawed film. I think there are certain merits to it. Um but of course, it's only you know its failures are only amplified more because 
the director is not some first-time director. It's not some average commercial director because it's Kim Ji-woon behind the, 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 the helm. So whatever flaws that there are in the film is amplified because someone like Kim Ji-woon shouldn't be making, you know, missteps like that. And when he does, people are a bit more cruel to it because he should have known better. And would I agree with that or not? I don't know. Um, it's definitely a misstep, but, you know, I still find some merit in the film. Um, at least if, if, you know, if this film proves one thing, it's that Kim Ji-woon doesn't need Hollywood. Come on. He can make a film of Hollywood caliber, of Hollywood production values with 18 million US dollars with this budget. If he could just spend some of that money on a better scriptwriter, maybe he would finally make that, you know, make another huge masterpiece. But, you know, I'm glad that this film proves that, you know, Kim Ji-woon doesn't need Hollywood. I'll repeat it again. Kim Ji-woon doesn't need Hollywood. Why would he... You know, Hollywood's never going to give him something of the caliber of the Wolf Brigade. He's never going; they're never going to give him something of that budget. So, and they're not, never going to give him the freedom to pull off some of the creative decisions that he does here. So, why bother? Kim Ji Woon, stay in Korea, keep making these big films. Um, forget Hollywood. You know, it doesn't. You don't need it. You don't need it, man. Yeah, this is. Um... This is a hard one for me because I'm a big fan of uh, Oshi's original and, you know, what little of this this uh, intellectual property I've been able to see over the years. It, it For those not familiar, this is part of what is called the um, Kerberos saga, and that's kind of a telling of um, a, pronun- a particular pronunciation of Cerberus, the three-headed dog, which is the kind of the the icon or the herald the heraldic symbol that is used by um the special unit and this uh series dates back i want to say 1987 when they did the first film in what is considered the trilogy in japan and that is red spectacles which was a live action film um there's been a lot of stuff in between there's been like i think there was a radio drama at one point or a couple radio dramas there's been quite a few manga and novel novelizations as well. Um, some years later, they did a second live-action film um, that's a sequel but a prequel to the first film called Stray Dog. And then they were planning, as I understand it, Oshi was planning to do a, the third one as a um, live-action, but he was in the midst of doing uh, The Ghost in the Shell at the time. The um, the anime, and ended up for whatever reason um, ended up doing the third film uh, as an anime version in, in 1999, and that is Jinro the Wolf Brigade, which this is uh, heavily based on and really uh, pulls quite a bit from. Uh, as Kevin mentioned, the main difference is that in Jinro, um, it is an alternative history kind of story like this is, except it's set in Japan. It's post-war, and Japan has been kind of um, bullied a bit by um, other powers, including China and and Russia and the United States. Um, And an alternative history has basically sprung up. And in this, you get 
you get some of the some of the elements that are present here in the film. Um, those elements being civil unrest, the rise of a group called the Special Unit, which you know wears this uh, specialized kind of Panzer style armor, which um, I think they have a specific name for. I think it's called Protect Gears, kind of in the you know the model collecting community. Um, but this very specialized kind of stormtrooper-esque, German-esque armor um, that has a kind of a steampunk look to it. And so because of that, because it's kind of set in a post-World War II era uh, in the Japanese version, it has a very distinctive look, you know, Japan in that era, whereas this is much more futuresque, and they've got drones and a lot of, you know, sci-fi technology added in um, beyond the the kind of powered armor. So, um, you, you know, they take, they take that out and they place it in this Korean reunification thing. But a lot of the story elements, a lot of the characters, um, are the same here, especially on the bookends, the beginning scenes and close to the end scenes. But I will say the end is very, very different from the Japanese version and not, necessarily in a good way, but I'll get to that in just a minute. So the main character in the Japanese version, uh, Japanese version is a character called Fusei. Here he's played um, by, as Kevin mentioned, um, the actor Gang Dong-wan, who is playing, a, his name is Lim here, but he's basically, you know, the same character. He encounters the same situation and that kind of sends him on this same path as what is seemingly a pawn in this power struggle. Um, and in some ways, the internal struggles that are here are very common themes. We've seen them present in works like Ghost in the Shell um, and Mass Munchiro's Appleseed movies and shows, even Detective D, you know, especially the one we just talked about, The Four Heavenly Kings. It's about this kind of intergroup fighting within an organization where you've got one security division that has power in one area and another security division that has authority in another area and who actually has the authority and the two kind of jockeying back and forth. Um, so these are very common themes that have been explored uh, frequently in, in other movies, not just, you know, China films, but Japanese films and, and even stuff, I mean, like we could think of like, uh, you know, Cold War, um, to, to some extent, right, is has some of that present. So um, the thing that's really significant in uh, Oshi's Jinro is there's this Red Riding Hood thematic element that's very, very present in the Jinro movie. It's here, they touch on it, um, and there's some visual representation of that going on as well. But it's much more heavily prevalent, I think, in the Japanese version. And here they dial that back a bit, especially um, uh, when we get to the ending. Um, so as I mentioned, some of the updated things that they do, they've got fancy drones here. It's not quite as retro steampunkish as the anime for sci-fi fans. Again, I think the art direction is going to be ple pleasing enough. The, the suits look great. Um, the effects, you know, that are there, that are present are really good. Action sequences are good. Music kind of threw me off because there's a musical cue in what's supposed to be kind of a romantic moment where they throw in an Enya song. I'm like, really? <laughs> Enya? Um, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of it is a bit reminiscent of something like 2009 Lost Memories because you're kind of dealing with the whole 
sort of alternate timeline thing here. Um, but the thing that really kind of shook me was in the anime version, there's a character twist um, that happens that's revealed much later in the story. And when that reveal takes place, it's kind of like, oh, okay. Um, what we thought was kind of happening here is suddenly, you know, you, you might have suspected a little something, but they, it, it's, it's kind of a twist, right? But here they kind of just, I think within the first 40 minutes, they've kind of already spilled that out there. Um, and I'm guessing they did that because they figure people watching this probably might have seen the, the first movie. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was, that kind of threw me. And then I was like, okay, because the basis of the relationships here, um, especially between the two leads, uh, with the character of Lim and, uh, the character of Lee Yun-hee, who's the girl who comes in as the sister of a girl that, um, basically is a suicide, you know, is, dies by suicide bomb, uh, and in the anime, their relationship is this kind of slow, pensive thing that just builds up through small moments and interactions and, you know, things where dialogue's not really a focus, but it's them being together in a certain location at times. And, you know, it's just, it's it really had a stronger connection. The characters here, I felt like, I didn't feel any chemistry really with them and I didn't really feel that connection that was supposed to be there by the end of the film. I just, it, it didn't feel to me like they had established that kind of relationship, especially because in part the character twist kind of comes in, uh, early on. So, um, that kind of threw me for a loop. Then like the middle of this film goes on and does its own thing. So the beginning of the film is pretty much almost shot for shot from Jinro. You get to the end of the film and it almost goes back to, you know, the shot for shot aspects with the exception of the very end. Um, but the middle, there's this whole kind of cat and mouse thing going on at Namsun Tower. And I'm like, I don't really understand what what's happening right now, because it's very clear in, in Jinro, the power struggle that's going on and, and, you know, people are talking about, you know, trying to, to set something up. But here it's like they're chasing people and there's a car chase and they jump out of the tower with a fire hose. And I'm like, what? I, I just, it, it, my suspension of disbelief because it was so much focused on action beats and action moments, which you would expect from something, you know, watching a movie like, uh, you know, skyscraper or the Meg or something. But here I was like, wait a minute, where's the, where's the slow moving kind of more thoughtful, introspective movie that I'm used to seeing, you know, in animated form. Um, so that kind of threw me and lost me for a while. And then by the end, when it starts to get back to that climactic encounter, then it's kind of, okay, we're back on track with, you know, um, what people who've seen the Japanese version have come to expect but losing that sort of ponderous charm in, in the place of action pieces and exploding cars did not really work for me it's not that those set pieces are bad it's just that it really makes it uh, a bit more confusing it's also very Korean in places I mean there's a scene where the guy who is the main villain 
Um, if you've seen the first one, you kind of know who, or seen the original, you know who the main villain is because that's kind of been spoiled. But again, that's another thing that you don't really know until much later in the film. But here it's like, He's like smacking a woman around. I'm like, really? I mean, it's there was none of that in in the characterizations of of the original, um, and he, and, he, and he's like over the top and you know torture. And I I thought I was watching an episode of Twenty Four for a second. It's it's just really changed in I I guess it's Korean esque in some aspects. Um, and to that point, the ending, the very end. Um, and I'm not going to spoil the end of Jinro, but for those who've seen Jinro, you know that it's got a very specific ending that is in the context of that film. That ending is not here. Um, and in fact, there's an entire extra fight scene for the heck of it. I don't know why, but <laughs> it, it's just, they said, we got to do this now. Okay. Um, and then beyond that, and that really came from, it seemed to like come from out of nowhere. I was like, wait a minute, did I miss an editing beat somewhere? Because, you know, suddenly this is happening now. And moments ago, it was like, no, this, you're going to, you got to do this. But the ending has changed. It's not, for me, it's not in a good way compared to the original. Um, it's very Korean I, 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 in, in terms, and I say this as somebody who's not seen a ton of Korean films, but it feel, it felt very Korean. It felt very Korean TV drama to me. Um, for, you know, the TV dramas I've seen in, in that way. But to do that to the original material, I just felt it was like just not a, not a good creative decision. Um, did not work for me at all. Made me want to go back and watch the ending of Jin Ro just to kind of cleanse my palate and say, yes, this is what should have happened. And yes, this is not, you know, this was not a good ending uh, for me. Um not that the Jinro ending is a great ending, but it just, in the context of the film, it it just felt like, you know, that's how it should have ended. Um, so, but yeah, and there's back, more backstory given to the Lee Yun-hae character, who's the K Ami Ami Mia character, um, you know, the the the, the sister character. Uh, they they give her like. Um, more backstory and she gets a chance to emote and they give her a brother and again a lot of extra stuff and this movie is so long it's like Kevin said you know it's like almost two hours and 20 minutes and they really didn't need that length I think the original is almost two hours running time they could have taken a lot of that this fluff out and I think really tightened it up um, but for the most part I think people are going to be coming to this because if they're not familiar with the original they're going to be seeing some of the action sequences in a trailer. They're going to be seeing the images of the um, the special unit armor and and that kind of thing. And that's appealing enough. And I'd say that do yourself a favor and definitely watch Jinro, the ninety nine version, before you want to, before you watch this, because then the sort of political game that's going on, the power struggle between um, the investigative unit and the special unit, the, the, you know, these two groups, is a lot more clear um, because that's still pretty much the same. They just throw in a lot of action spectacle pieces. Um, I think if you come at this fresh like Kevin did, a lot of that's going to be really unclear because a lot of times they throw in a couple characters who are 
kind of not necessary and they don't really show up again and you're not really sure who they are in terms of the relevance of everything. Um, and again, they're just kind of cramming in a lot and they could have tapped it down and I think tightened it up a little bit. But it's good for action and if that's your thing, again, you want to see people with power armor, uh, you know, and big heavy machine guns mowing people down, it's got that. It, it, it You know, that's here and it's it's very, very well done even when it's just kind of going through the motions or recreating the scenes uh, from the anime version. So, You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snow's Radio Orchestra. Research come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com or follow us on Twitter at concast. Email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And follow us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, please do follow along with Kevin in all that he does. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Oh, my God, where do I start? Um, I am the editor, entertainment editor of uh, Cathay Pacific and Cathay Dragons uh, Discovery and Silco Magazines. Uh, right now we're stepping into November. So uh, I, of course, have forgotten what I've written about. But you... Check out the entertainment section. You'll see my reviews for the films that are on board now. You wrote um, about Canto Pop, if I remember correctly, right? I did a piece elsewhere in the magazine. Um, we have a section called Hong Kong Issue because November is our special music issue. So um, we covered uh, a lot of – and it's because Clock and Flap. So uh, I did a little piece about Canto Pop, uh, which you can read uh, on board. Um, and, of course, a bunch of reviews for films that are playing on, on board as well. Um, my gosh, what did I review? Oh, I reviewed Koreeda Hirokazu's uh, Shoplifters because that's playing on board. Um, that's something I'm proud of. That's a that's a pretty a piece I'm very proud of. Um, and yeah, just read the rest of the section and see what see what's there. Uh, I think there's also uh, there's also a review of um, the TV series uh, Killing Eve, which I uh, a show that I like quite a bit. Um, so that's on. Uh, and then uh, I also run a site called Asia and Cinema. Um, I am an official media partner of uh, Poland's uh, Five Flavors Film Festival. So uh, I will try and post a bit more. I've already posted about the lineup um, of the festival there on the website. So I'll try and post more. And I think I'm going to write about the results of the Tokyo Film Festival. And, of course, be sure to come by and check out my annual Golden Horse Live blog. Golden Horse Live blog. You won't get English coverage live anywhere else in the world. I promise you. It is the biggest event of Chinese cinema. And um, so, therefore, the Golden Horse Live blog is the only English live coverage you see of this event. Um, I think the award will be streamed uh, in some countries, um, but I have no idea what yet. But if you follow the official Twitter account of Asian Cinema or Facebook account, you will. I will offer those um, the names of those platforms on there as well. Um, and film-wise, do I have anything coming out of some? I'm subtitling a lot of films. Project Gutenberg is still playing around the world. 
so go please go see Project Gutenberg starring Aaron Qualk and Charon Fat. Um, I also have uh, working on one film that's coming out at the end of the year, at least one film uh, that's coming out at the end of the year in December. Uh, I might have another film that's coming out early next year. Um, and another project, I will announce them when, as soon as their, you know, release dates are announced, um, and things like that. Uh, other than that, I think that's it. Oh, you can contact me, uh, at, uh, Kevin at AsianCinema.com. All right. Excellent. And please do check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network and all the good work that they do. Our next show, uh, you know, I, I had wanted to do an episode on the golden job, with uh, Eakin and the boys, but we might be a little bit too far removed to, to talk about that. Um, but there is a new film on Netflix uh, that caught my eye out of uh, Singapore called Shirkers, which seemed like it was really interesting, so I think I might talk about that. Um, what do we got on Hong Kong's plate? Well, there's a bunch of stuff I could talk about. Um, Keyboard Warriors, uh, which is the directorial debut of writer Seto Ching, or I could talk about Stanley Kwan's First Night Nerves, which I saw in um, uh, uh, Busan. And of course, I'll be in Golden Horse, and I'm watching like four or five new Hong Kong movies there as well. So plenty to talk about. All right, so yeah, we will have that, uh, at, least, at least something uh, on our next show. So until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, as always, even when we're not here, we wish you good viewing. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Uh.